Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Chris the Chew Manchu, and I'm joined by some fantastic hosts with me tonight. I have Sam. Say hi, Sam. Hey, Chris. Hey, Clara. And, and I have Clara as well. Say hi, Clara. Hi. So we have Dr. Marissa Hauptman to discuss pediatric lead screening and treatment. But first, Sam, do you want to remind us what the show is about? Oh, Chris, I'd love to. So we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Marissa Hopeman. Um, she is a pediatrician and co-director for the Boston Children's Hospital Pediatric Environmental Health Center, where she provides multidisciplinary care to children with lead, asthma, and other environmental exposures. Um, her research also focuses on systematically integrating information about environmental exposures into clinical care in order to address environmental and social health disparities in children with chronic diseases. In this episode, she teaches us how to manage elevated levels of lead, the important pieces of an environmental exposure history, and what to do in cases of acute lead toxicity. All right, so with our recent episodes, I've been giving a haiku written by AI, so here's the one for lead. A drop of blood drawn, lead poisoning can be silent. Early detection key. Hopefully everyone enjoys the upcoming episode. Take a listen. All right. Dr. Marissa Hopman, is it okay if I uh, call you by your first name? Sure, I would love that. Excellent. Yeah, we're just in an informal group, and I, you know, it just makes it easier to talk this way. So I'd like to get our audience to get to know you a little better. Do you mind, you know, describing yourself a little bit? Sure. I'm a mother, a pediatrician, an environmental justice champion, a New Yorker who's now in Boston in a New England transplant, and who's raising a delicious rising kindergarten girl who loves to travel the world, especially to visit her family in India. Oh, fantastic. I have a question. Um, I am trying to read more, and I was wondering if you have a book that you feel like every physician should read or just every person should read. I have three. Um one that I read before transitioning from public health graduate school to medical school was Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder, and I think especially important this year with the passing of Paul Farmer. And then two that are on theme for this today's podcast um, are What the Eyes Don't See by Dr. Mona Hanatisha. And um, having a young family, I largely am reading children's books these days at nighttime and recently have loved reading We Are Better Together by Bill McKibben, which celebrates what we are able to accomplish together and how we can apply this in addressing our climate crisis and inspire the next generation. Wonderful. Definitely have to go on my, my list. Do you want me to jump in with the next one, Chris? All right. So this is Chris's favorite question. So I'm just going to take it right from out from under <laughs> him. Um, so we usually ask, you know, what's your favorite failure and what do you think you've learned from it? Because we're all trying to get better and we all keep failing and that's all right. So I think one that 
is relevant for today is um, when I was graduating from college, I tried all year to find a job. I knew I was taking a gap year before medical school, thanks to paper MCAS, and could not get a job, um, a first full-time job post-college. And so I was informed by one of my mentors at Brown, where I was an undergrad, was building its program in public health for um, their master of public health degree. And so I applied in May of my senior year and was accepted and um, awarded a graduate assistantship to provide analytical and public health support for a statewide primary lead poisoning prevention program under the mentorship of Dr. Patrick Vivier. Um, And that was made possible through a lawsuit by now Senator, then Attorney General of Rhode Island, Sheldon Whitehouse, to sue the lead paint companies for creating a public nuisance. So I think at the time I thought it must be something about me that I couldn't find a job. And and in reality, you never know what's around the next corner. And, and, um, and continuing to keep on hoping that good will come from that failure. Yeah, I think all the stuff is, you never know what's around the next corner, just keep what's doing in front of you is just such a good mantra. And I think we all live that in medicine. And we all kind of just walk into the next thing. And, uh, and it turns out it might be the pathway for the next 10, 15, 20 years in our career. And uh, we never, we all never would have seen it coming. And so uh, it's always good to keep your eyes open. So thank you for sharing that. Before we move on to our case, we got to tell you about one of our sponsors. So now that you're in the thick of summer, you might be looking for some wholesome, convenient meals to support sunny, active days. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with flavorful and nutritious ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. Too busy seeing patients to cook, but want to make sure you're eating well? With Factor, skip the extra trip to the grocery store and the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too, while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality you need. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes. So fast that you actually wish they took longer just so you didn't have to return to work. So for those with nutritional goals or dietary specifications, they offer plenty of options, from keto to calorie smart, vegan and veggie option, and protein plus. So actually at home, we tried the vegan and veggie option and found the risotto with goat cheese and cacio e pepe absolutely delicious. For our listeners, head to factormeals.com slash cribsiders50 and use code cribsiders50 to get 50% off. That's code cribsiders50 at factormeals.com slash cribsiders50 to get 50% off. All right. Should we start getting to our first case, Clara? Yeah, let's do it. Um, So our case is Bella, who is a healthy 12-month-old in clinic for her well-child exam. Her growth curves look good, and she's meeting all her developmental milestones. Um, You tell her parents that she's due for lead screening today in addition to her vaccines, and her parents are kind of hesitant to do a lab draw. They say they live in a house that was just newly built. They never see her putting paint chips into her mouth, and they want to know why this is even necessary. So can you kind of describe the scope of lead exposure in the U.S. today and how that's kind of changed pretty drastically over the past few decades? Sure. Good for you for bringing this up to the family at their 12-month visit and identifying the importance of secondary prevention and good for the family for asking questions. Um, An easy answer is that you also have to test for iron deficiency anemia. So um, sadly, they can't get around the blood draw. But in terms of why lead is important, um, it's estimated that still today, 536,000 children in the U.S. have elevated blood lead level above the CDC reference value, and that 36, 3.6 million U.S. households are currently exposed to lead hazards, um, as they were built likely before um, lead-based paint was banned in the U.S. Um, in 1978. Leveraging more recent data, um, a study I did with collaborators from Quest Clinical Data Laboratory showed that over a two-year period, close to 50% of our 
more than 1 million cohort um, had detectable lead exposure. I think for this particular patient that lives in a newer home that presumably was built after 1978, I think that is great. I think I would identify that there are other sources of lead in the environment that may cause detectable lead levels, such as water, contaminated soil, school exposures, potentially, um, as well as alternative sources um, that from imported cookware or or jewelry, or um, occupational take-home exposure. So in the U.S., the CDC recommends that um, if you're receiving Medicaid um, or public assistance, um, all children should be tested at one and two years of age. They then go on to say that for those not receiving public assistance, as well as those that do, should follow local guidelines. So depending on sort of what state you are practicing um, and what states your patients live may dictate how frequent you recommend lead testing for your patients and whether your state guidance is for a lead screening questionnaire to guide your lead testing. So one question I have is, you know, for for some of those those patients and their families as we're looking at um, timing of of screening, why, why would one screen at one years of age versus earlier? It's a great question. Um, and I think there are a few reasons. One is the risk of exposure to lead and also the risk of sequelae from that exposure. And I think both of those peak at 12 months, 24 months, even 36 months of age. Um, I think you could make the argument that 12, that it should be more like nine to 12 months um, for that first testing. And in my practice as a primary care pediatrician, that that's when I typically do it in Massachusetts. Um, so the factors that increase exposure to lead are normal hand-to-mouth behavior that is part of a child and an infant and young toddler developing and exploring their environment and getting to know their world around them, um, as well as mobility. So in the early months of infancy, infants aren't exploring their environment. They're not crawling, they're not walking, they're not cruising, they're not pulling up to stand on old window stills, et cetera. So um, they're a little bit less at risk. And another thing to consider for your patient population in terms of young infancy is whether they're drinking formula. And this came up um, in the setting of the Flint water crisis. Um, Children less than one that may be reconstituting their formula with water um, if they're in an area with significant lead contamination may have increased exposure from from their water sources less than one years of age, um, more so than older children. In terms of impact to the child, there's a few reasons why um, younger children are more at risk for um, the developmental sequelae from lead exposure. One is they have a more permeable blood-brain barrier that allows toxins in their bloodstream to affect their brain development. Their organs um, are developing and growing at a significant rate that makes um them more prone to injury, and um, their liver and kidney are immature, and so they're less able to um, have effective detoxification of their blood um, are sort of the primary reasons. We certainly see um, in our Pediatric Environmental Health Center here um, significant populations of children that are outside of um, those young infant and toddler ages, and um, so I'm not thinking about autism or developmental concerns that PICA is persistent for some individuals and, and um, exacerbates their exposures um, well into childhood. When you kind of look at the, the lead levels that come back, is there any safe level of lead exposure? Like I sometimes I think in our clinic, it's like less than five, it gets like a black number. And if it's above five, it becomes red. What number do you use as the cutoff? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, every public health agency document and media article about lead exposure in the U.S. since 2012 will cite this quote that you mentioned, Clara, of there's no safe lead level. Um, and this is true. Lead can act as a neurotoxin in developing brains and um, has been shown to impact attention, um, behavioral concerns, IQ. Um, a child with a lead level above five will have like a six-point decrement in IQ from their lead exposure. Um, however, I think it's important to recognize that on a population level, studies after studies for decades have, have not demonstrated that there's a safe lead level. And although in a preventative approach, we should work towards getting as much lead from our environment as possible and, and um, there's plenty of evidence to suggest the positive public health benefit of that. I think on an individual level, when I'm counseling patients, I think recognizing that the stress of hearing that their child's been lead poisoning and how paralyzing that can be is is critical to um, really frame the way you I talk to patients and how I'd recommend talking to families about this and that for any one individual child, it's impossible to know what the impact is and that the dose certainly matters as well as the duration of exposure. And so we're going to work together to minimize both of those as quickly as possible to minimize any long-term impacts. Um, and I have a follow-up question to what you just said right there. So I know we're going to get into treatment in a second, so I'm not going to kind of go down that road, but more, so you were mentioning that, hey, there's no um, no safe level of exposure, even maybe five to 10 will give you a knock in your IQ. Is that treatable? So for example, if I remove said lead, and we'll talk again about how we do that, if I remove the lead, am I, is my IQ going to go back? Or is that really once you take that hit, you're kind of, you're taking that hit? It's a great question. I mean, I think medicine keeps us humble, and um, I'm sure there's more to learn about the prospective impact of lead. And, and I think many of the studies are retrospective, although there are some that are prospective that date those prior findings. But I think the child and the body and the brain are resilient, um, and that there is a benefit of reducing the lead exposure. There was a recent study by Jennifer's Stingone um, and JAMA Pediatrics that showed the benefit of early intervention for children with an elevated lead level and and showed a uh, like ten to fourteen percent increase in English scores and math testing scores in the schools as well as uh, increased likelihood of passing the standardized test scores if for those that were received early intervention with an elevated lead level compared to those that didn't so. I think that's first and foremost what I would recommend to all families with an elevated lead level that are less than three. I also think that there isn't a treatment for those lower blood lead levels to get the lead out quicker. The CDC, in recognizing that there's no safe blood lead level, no longer defines lead based on what they used to think was the safe blood lead level, which um, in 1991 was anything less than 10, and in 2012 re-modified their guidelines to derive the blood lead reference level to the 97th and a half percentile based on the most recent NHANES, and then modified it again in 2021 to now 3.5. So the CDC would recommend that if a child has an elevated blood lead level above 3.5, that public health action is needed, whether that's to try to find the source of lead and eliminate it. Gotcha. So we've been talking a lot about, you know, some of the neurological development and complication and potential outcomes. Are there other potential harms that we need to worry about with lead exposure? That's a great question. I mean, I think depending on the dose, there certainly are more systemic 
findings. I think a lot of the neurodevelopmental sequelae are delayed findings, and um, certainly at higher levels, it can affect your blood cell production and cause anemia. It can cause lead abdominal colic. It can cause lead encephalopathy. It could cause seizures, death, et cetera. Um, But that's certainly a minority of the lead exposure that we see today, thankfully. How do you actually recommend checking the lead level? I know there's like capillary sticks versus getting an actual venous sample. Is there one that you recommend over the other or is it just like as long as we can check it, then that's good? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, especially important in recent years. I think there are strengths to both. I think from a capillary perspective, oftentimes you get the result or you may be able to get the result in your office. Um, certainly from a patient experience perspective, it's it's often much less traumatic for the family, the parent, the child. And I still think it gives you good information. Um, sometimes when we have an elevated capillary result, people say, oh, that's a false positive if the venous doesn't come back elevated. I sort of look at it a little bit different as that's telling us that there's lead somewhere in the patient's environment that may not have reached the child's blood yet, but could. And so that's a real wonderful opportunity to really take a look at the housing environment, the school environments, the areas where the child plays or spends a significant amount of time to make sure that we're addressing the lead in those environments before it ever gets to the child. There has been recent recalls around lead, capillary lead testing that have impacted the trust of some of the machines that were used um, for some time, but there's still other capillary testing options that are still available. I think it's just less likely that you'll get a result in your clinic like you used to. From a venous perspective, obviously, that's more the gold standard, and we know what's in the child's body, not just what's in the child's body and what's in the child's environment at the same time. Um, And so obviously, that is the gold standard. And if you have an elevated capillary level above 3.5, it's recommended that you repeat um, that specimen with a venous blood draw. Um, but certainly a venous blood draw is is, is much harder and, and more traumatic of an experience for a child. Are those capillary tests pretty sensitive though? So if we have a if we have a, a fairly low capillary result lower than 3.5, we, we should feel fairly rest assured that the venous will likely be okay? Yeah, I would think so. And I think the evidence supports that, um, that it's a screening tool, the capillary test. So low value is is reassuring, at least for the child's exposure um, at that time. And no further action is needed until the less re- next recommended blood draw. Let's say that in our case, um, Bella gets a venous sample and her CBC comes back. Her hemoglobin is 10, her MCV is 75, and her lead level is 6. Um, and you bring her back to talk about these results. How do you take an environmental exposure history and what kinds of recommendations do you make to parents about how they can make changes to their homes if if the level comes back at six, but not at like a critically high level? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, In terms of the first question about thinking about an environmental health history, there are a few models out there. Um, The National Environmental Education Foundation The National Environmental Education Foundation has very extensive environmental history. Myself, with partnership with one of our rising faculty, Dr. Shalini Shah, developed a new environmental health screener that hopefully is a mnemonic that helps individuals, providers remember how to take environmental health history. So for lead specifically, thinking about H, the first, the mnemonic is H home. So H as in housing type, age, ownership, status, chipping, peeling paint. Another H as in H2O or water, so thinking about the water sources, well water, is it tested, city, are there lead pipes, and any water contamination issues of the home in thinking about mold and um, potentially sort of debris that 
could impact lead exposure. Um, and moving beyond a little bit lead exposure, specifically thinking about oxygen, so the air quality of the home and the neighborhood, especially recently with the impacts of the, this wildfire smoke, thinking about sort of secondhand environmental tobacco smoke or vaping or marijuana, M as in mites or pests, and then E, thinking about exposure. So whether there's lead paint in the home, whether the families had their home inspected for lead paint, that's not usually routine on a general inspection, um, asking their landlord if they don't own what the lead status is of the home. Thinking about the family members' occupational and vocational exposures. Are they in construction? Are they bringing home lead from their work and lead take-home exposures? Do they go to shooting ranges on the weekends and use lead-laden lead bullets? Are they doing stained glass or soldering fishing sinkers? And then some alternative sources. So are they using imported cookware or Ayurvedic medicine or or jewelry that maybe contains lead? And then I think the stressors, like what related to the sort of the social determinants of health screening and, and really what, what is impacting this family today and this family's health, um, their climate change stressors and vulnerabilities, and then the child's pica or oral behaviors that may be exacerbating their lead exposure. And in addition to that sort of H. Holmes mnemonic, um, you know, I think specifically for lead, thinking about nutritional status um, that may impact how well they absorb lead in their GI tract, and then their developmental history, which lead often can cause developmental sequelae, but often will exacerbate potentially developmental vulnerabilities that may may precede the lead exposure. So what are you telling this family? You know, you just brought them back. We just discussed that the the lead level from the CDC dated in 2021 is three and a half, and this is six. So we're definitely in the uh-oh range. Um, so what are we thinking that we're telling them right off the bat? Yeah, it's a great question. I think first and foremost, I try to tell families that this isn't your fault. Even if you live in a home that you don't own, this isn't necessarily your landlord's fault. I, I try to give a little bit of the history of lead in our environments. Um, Europe banned lead in 1908, and it wasn't until 1978 that it was banned in the U.S. So, you know, this is in part the fault, in my opinion, of um, weaker environmental regulations um, that don't necessarily do enough to keep our environments safe where we live, learn, work, and play. And that um, I try to many times that there are many children in the home and only one of them is has an elevated lead level. And so trying to um, share about, you know, that this is very normal to have hand-to-mouth behavior, pica behaviors, and that, you know, it wasn't that you weren't watching your child closely enough or any of those factors. It's It's really that very little, um, pretty microscopic amounts of lead um, exposure can cause a lead level of six. Um, and and what I stated before, that we're going to work together to reduce the height of this exposure, make sure it's not six going on 30, and reduce the duration that your child has this elevated level. Um, and um, usually I um, talk to them about a few things that they can do today, even before sort of renovating their whole house to get rid of the lead, um, if it's from lead-based paint hazards. Um, but the majority of lead um, in our country is from lead-based paint hazards, so I typically start there, especially if, um, if I know they live in an older home. Um, so it's covering up, chipping, and peeling paint with duct tape or contact paper to just reduce that lead-laden dust burden. It's doing frequent wet mopping or washing of floors and surfaces that the child plays frequently, um, washing the child's hands frequently, taking your shoes off at the door so you're not tripsing in contaminated soil, um, and trying 
um, in primary care, pediatric visits, even before a child has an elevated level, talking to the family about what is the status of your home, if they know, if they own their home, getting a certified lead inspection so that they know which areas of the home are safer than others. Um, and different states um, will have different levels that they are mandated to get involved in Massachusetts right now. Um, if a child has a lead level greater than 10, for example, they're mandated to do a lead inspection and, and will, um, if they find hazards for children living there under the age of six, will mandate mitigation. So this family is is not yet at that level. So so they're not mandated by the state to do to mitigate their home or identify where the lead source are, but I would recommend it from a clinical perspective. Okay, so we've talked about, um, we actually brought up Flint, Michigan a couple times. So, you know, the Flint water crisis really has brought about, you know, this discussion about a lot of health disparities and exposure to lead. Are you able to just do a little more discussion about health disparities that we may see um, around this? Yeah, I think, thank you for bringing up that experience um, in Flint and, and this issue of environmental racism. I think it's an enormous issue and I think we can't begin to address the lead disparity, the lead exposures in our country without recognizing um, this historical injustice and and its ongoing environmental racism that's continuing to expose our children to lead and other environmental chemicals in our communities. Um, Certainly lead, like many other environmental chemicals and other disease processes, is greatly impacted by environmental inequities, environmental justice, environmental racism. Many studies um, that I've done in Rhode Island, as well as nationally, have shown that a dose-response relationship between proportion of old housing stock and proportion of poverty um, by neighborhood and risk of lead exposure in the children in those communities. Um, and that similar findings have been shown with um, like a twofold increase in lead exposure for children receiving public insurance um, and for children um, of minoritized populations largely due to proportion living in old neighborhoods with poverty and old housing stock. And when you adjust for those factors, the race impact is is much is minimized. Um, so certainly this is driving our lead exposure throughout our communities today. And I, I think one other thing just to note is that the impact of the lead exposure, I think, is compounded in um, impoverished communities and, and communities with many other stressors that um, not only do you have the lead exposure, but you may have an increased risk for iron deficiency anemia and, and an increased risk of um, other um, exposures that may impact your child's development. And so all of those exposures are compounded in, in, in these communities. I'm saying I'm sure exposure is well, not to mention the ability to make it better. So, exactly. you know, we just yeah. talked before about, you know, putting in, whether it be getting your landlord to do something, whether it be your insurance company doing something, whether it be your state doing something, can you reach out to those resources? Do you even speak the language with which to make this happen? You know, I imagine those things are compounded even more. Have you seen, um, have you seen something similar there? Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that is spot on. And, um, I think, you know, I think relying on the Department of Public Health to help your child's lead exposure can be very, very scary if you're undocumented or if you have um, intergenerational mistrust of agencies for good reason and and just without the economic resources to mitigate your home if you own them. I think a significant portion of our population that are on public insurance and are non-native English language 
speakers, um, and a significant amount that may have saved all their money to buy their home and, um, you know, were able to buy this home, but it's ridden with lead exposure and, and doing those renovations is, is not cheap for anyone. It's like $50,000, which, which most individuals with young children don't have lying around. Um, and so there are federal funds and public funds to help, but often it involves sort of taking a lean on your home and, and these kinds of things. So. Right. And it probably also involves knowing how this works and knowing where you can get the resources and advocating for yourself, which has also got to be one of the hardest things to do for uh, for this group of pe- people who are already upper- underrepresented to then go and advocate to all the um, to, to the people they need to get the money where they need it. So, um, so that's, I'm sure, challenging as well. Um, but thank you for bringing this up. The thing that I was going to mention is, you know, we're kind of in the middle ground right now with this uh, with this Venus level of six. The good news is... Hopefully, it's not as dangerous as some of the higher levels, but we talked about it. There never being a safe level. So, and then the last thing you said is that we want it to be six and not go six to thirty. So, um, so what should we be doing actually from a medical standpoint, from a clinic standpoint? Should we tr- be treating this? Should we be checking labs? Like, what else do we need to be doing from a doctor standpoint? Yeah, it's a great question. Going back one second to the question before, I think in addition, just really the lack of affordable housing and safe affordable housing in our nation is contributing to this environmental inequities and environmental racism problem and is a great solution to how to solve it is is really advocating for policies that strengthen our housing um, in each of our communities that um, to make sure that in addition to being able to put a roof over your head, they're putting a safe roof over your family's head. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of this question, um, I think there are a few things to do. I think um, the other thing to make sure to highlight for this family and patient is that the child was anemic, so had a hemoglobin of 10, um, and that may be potentially playing a role in this child's lead exposure, that we know that when a child is deficient in iron, which potentially is the case in this child, that they're more likely to absorb lead from their GI tract, um, as the lead and the iron are, are both divalent metal cations and two plus ions that are competing for absorption. So if your body doesn't have iron sources in sufficient supply, it's going to absorb more lead from your environment. The iron often that we supplement children with when they are found to have an elevated lead level or um, found to be anemic at the same time is not sadly going to make the lead leave the body quicker. It's not a keelant, but it will um, help in terms of competitive inhibition if, if the child's continuing to be exposed to lead. Um, and same is true for calcium. So I think um, talking to the family about their nutritional sources of of iron and calcium in their diet. Um, one one um, factor that we see a ton a lot of in this age group is a significant milk intake. And so making sure to talk to them about how much milk their young toddler is having and sort of have they shifted from milk is the most important thing you can give your child, breast milk or formula, et cetera, to, okay, now we want to decrease it and give solid foods that are um, nutritionally rich. And so for just the... um I actually want, do want to get to the iron and calcium supplementation in a second, but I just want to bring it a little bit back to just the lab levels itself. So when we check the labs, we got a CBC. We mentioned that we had a hemoglobin of 10, MCV is 75. So we're looking like we're in a deficiency right now. Um, most likely iron deficiency combined with some lead exposure to go with. Um, is there any other labs that we should be checking now that we have these positive results? Yeah, so I wouldn't restick the trial just yet. Um, I think you have enough to sort of at least supplement with 
three megs per keg daily of um, ferrous sulfate um, and really start addressing where the lead may be coming from in the environment. And that's probably more than enough for this family. Also um, referring them to early intervention um, and um, if they're amenable. Um, and then the CDC has actually a great um, chart of based on what the lead level is, when do they recommend repeating it? And so for this child with a lead level of six, um, in sort of the early period where you're still trying to decide, is this two to six and going back to two, or is this um, six coming down from a higher exposure, et cetera, they would recommend checking um, follow-up testing within three months. And often, to be honest, I tend to shorten that period for that first check be just to sort of really get a sense of the trajectory of this lead exposure and, and positive reinforcement for the family that their interventions are helping to decrease the exposure and not and there isn't an increase from sex. Um, and then um, depending on sort of where it goes from here, um, you know, maybe repeating another one in three months. And then depending on sort of what the status is of the home and what you've learned from the environmental history and inspections, et cetera, can space it out further and even go back to routine testing if it falls below 3.5. One other thing just to note is that once a child, in terms of the capillary versus venous, once a child has an elevated lead level above 3.5, we no longer recommend capillary testing because you're going to just be sticking the child twice rather than once um, with a venous. And you had mentioned the, um, the so the iron supplementation, we want to use three megs per keg, um, and we probably want to start that daily to try to see if, number one, we can um, improve our iron deficiency anemia, but the other one is to sort of outcompete the lead um, when we're, when we're um, you know, taking in solids. As for calcium supplementation, you had mentioned, so what's the reason to do calcium supplementation, and what should we be giving our kids um, on, this, on this one? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think in terms of sort of the evidence, there there isn't great evidence in terms of um, whether you should check for calcium levels. Um, I think knowing what we know about sort of vitamin D deficiencies, oftentimes when I see the patients in environmental health clinic, I'll when I'm drawing a slew of labs, I'll will add a vitamin D level because of that um, high risk of deficiency in our populations, as well as um, for that theoretical um, competitive inhibition absorption factor um, and then supplement accordingly, but I don't routinely check a calcium level. Um, and then in terms of, um, I wouldn't sort of bring the patient back that week with a lead level of six to, to repeat testing, but I would at an appropriate interval get a repeat CBC, get a repeat lead level, get a iron studies to formally document their iron status. Um, I think even um, in the absence of anemia, that the second blood draw, I tend to get iron studies um, because there's a significant amount of patients that are not anemic but are iron deficient, and that may also be contributing to their lead absorption. Do you check a CRP, and like, what is that telling us if it's elevated? Yeah, it's a good question. My understanding um, is that we check a CRP with the ferritin um, because ferritin is an acute phase reactant, and so um, it makes the ferritin easier to interpret if, if you have a negative CRP, then you can trust the ferritin, the low ferritin level more. And if you have a elevated CRP from an illness, et cetera, then the ferritin may be falsely elevated. Um, I don't typically get that on my routine universal testing of patients. I usually just get a hemoglobin and a, and a lead level. Gotcha. 
And if you do end up doing, you know, a ferritin and you're worried about other inflammatory things and they have an elevated CRP, what about something like a, like a soluble transferrin receptor or something like that? Would that be useful in this case? Yeah. Typically, my iron studies of choice um, are um, a TIBC, a total iron binding capacity, uh, an iron plasma, a ferritin, um, and then... Um, we do a reticulocyte count and have a reticulocyte cell hemoglobin, which um, studies have shown is a good marker for iron deficiency as well. But that's all sort of once I've identified that a patient has an elevated lead level. All right. Let me see if I can summarize this case a little bit, and then we can jump to the next one, um, Clara. So it sounds like, so we have Bella, she came in, she got a hemoglobin of 10, MCV is 75, lead level of 6. You know, the first thing we did, we took an awesome environmental exposure history. We tried to figure out where this might be coming from. Um, and then we at least gave off the bat some recommendations that they can do, depending on who owns the home and whether they actually can get a, a kind of inspection, at least on those lines, they can at least tape up the home, they can wash their hands, they can take off their shoes, they can make sure pretty much everything from the soil, everything from the water and everything from the chipping paint can be avoided. Then we're going to it sounds like give them three mg per kg of iron followed by rechecking a lead level in anywhere between. It sounds like three months, but you kind of do it a little bit earlier. Um, and at that case, we might get a CBC, ferritin, maybe CRP just to see if that ferritin is acute phase reactant or not. And then hopefully for our patient Bella that we've done all this awesome stuff that lead level is downtrending now. And so we space this out a little bit. And then just the last piece is that we probably then screen again. Once we spaced out, you know, um, we're getting the lead level again at age two as per the CDC recommendations um, and going from there. So that's, so we eventually make it to two and it sounds like we're doing a pretty good job, but, um, but, uh, but Claire, you mind uh, taking us through our next case and see, and see if we can do just as good of a job? Yeah. So our next case is um, a two-year-old patient, Eddie. He's coming in with abdominal pain that um, his mom says has been going on and off for a couple months now. Um, you take a really great history and you learn that he lives in an older house that was built before 1978. And she has intermittently like seen him putting things in his mouth, maybe paint chips. He's kind of fallen off his growth curve. He hasn't had the greatest well child care so he's never actually had his lead level or hemoglobin checked before so you get labs today and his labs come back with a hemoglobin of eight and a lead level of 50. Um, so kind of what are the signs and symptoms of acute lead poisoning um, what should we be looking out for yeah it's a great question um so first i would be looking out for anemia which this patient has and, and it's very likely that it's sort of multifactorial anemia. It's maybe from iron deficiency anemia in the diet, as well as um, the lead interrupting the hemoglobin production. It can definitely cause this intermittent abdominal pain that he's been experiencing. This they call it lead colic. It can cause constipation, etc. Um, at this these levels, um, it can also sometimes families at these levels won't necessarily say that the child is having any acute changes in their behavior. Sometimes they may be having difficulty sleeping or just like increase in their behavioral outbursts that sort of the family contributed to just sort of a bad phase in the toddler's <laughs> cycle and, and nothing too, too out of the norm. But certainly sometimes in hindsight, families can identify, oh yeah, that we've been having a few tough weeks. And I think pretty much that's it for a level of 50. At much higher levels, you can certainly get encephalopathy and worsening anemia and more severe outcomes, but that's usually what we see at 50. Sometimes in children with autism or, or other developmental concerns, we families actually may say that the child's actually behaving sometimes 
better. And maybe that's because they're having a little bit of, for whatever reason, SNIs at the high levels, they're sort of like stunned a little bit, I think, kids. And and they're have, um, in that acute period, have like shorter, um, are just like a little bit less active. But um, I think that's probably anecdotal and just cut that whole part. <laughs> no, but that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting pearl. Um, and, and I could see that, you know, especially if you're getting more fatigued for whatever reason as well, you know, yeah. you might not be as active and bouncing off the walls as you were before. Right. Um, regardless of the, uh, I can see it. I can see it. Whether yeah. it's evidence-based or not, I can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting then once you um, chelate the child, their sort of personality comes back and, and, yeah. um, and you see that difference. So the difference between five, or actually, sorry, the difference between our level level of six and now our level of 50, yeah. what other tests are we going to be ordering now? Is there anything more to get um, this time around? Yeah. So a level of 50, I would be making sure I have a really good contact number and hope for the best in the system for this family. And I'd be calling them and actually referring them to your local ER. And the reason for that is a few fold. Um, one, we have to make sure, um, especially with this recent history of a witness ingestion of paint chips, that they don't have paint chips in the stomach or small intestine that we can intervene on, that we can do a GI decontamination to mitigate further lead exposure um, in this patient. And it's really to get them out of the home environment and start chelation therapy so that um, we can intervene, get the lead level down. But more importantly, probably is to temporize the home and the potential lead hazards and minimize further exposure. And what's the cutoff lead level that you use for that? You know, we just talked about 50 and six, but I'm guessing 50 isn't the cutoff. <laughs> yeah, typically I start to think about it around 45, um, even sometimes around 40 if it if it seems like the family's home is, is significantly... Um, contaminated with lead. Um, and that's for admission into the hospital for referral to an ER, or at least just to get an abdominal film is usually around 25 and, and above. So abdominal film 25 and above, at least going to the ER for even more interventions or more tests for 45 and above. Um, so what are those other tests we're getting? Um, and then we can talk a little bit about what we do with the results. Yeah, so usually we're getting a, CB, a repeat CBC with a diff for potential immunotoxicity from the chelins, repeat lead level, um, especially if this was a cap that also goes into the sort of decision tree of when to start chelation therapy, something called a zinc porter porphyrin level that um, speaks to a little bit about how much the lead is disrupting the hemoglobin production pathway. It's a substrate that um, ferrochelates axon to produce hemoglobin and lead inhibits ferrochelates, the enzyme. And so you'll have a buildup of portoporphyrin, which finds zinc and has a buildup of zinc portoporphyrin and also tells us a lot of information around chronicity of lead, given that it's the lifespan of a red blood cell, so 120 days. Um, you're getting labs to assess for baselines prior to starting chelation. So depending on what chelation you're starting. If you're starting an IV parenteral calcium disodium EDTA or editate for this level, which is reasonable, you would be placing an IV and you would be getting a baseline UA. And I would probably also get a basic metabolic panel, renal function, because um, this keylint is nephrotoxic, as well as liver function tests for the likelihood that shortly thereafter, this patient will be on an oral keylint, which is um, dimercaptosuccinic acid um, or Suximer or, or Kemet or two of the brand names. And for that, you'd want to check liver enzymes. Um, and then I mentioned the abdominal x-ray. We no longer are getting x-rays of the extremities. Um, I think that went out of favor probably 
20, 25 years ago, although sometimes they're still ordered, I think, with the precision of our blood lead testing, the importance of those long bone films are less so and less accurate and the emphasis to try to reduce radiographs for our patients. Um, we don't recommend those. So if this child did have like paint chips that were visible on the abdominal film, um, how do you actually do the GI contamination? Yeah, it's a great question. So lead is absorbed um, by the divalent metal transporter in the small intestines. And so if the lead and your radiologists are able to tell you that the lead's in the stomach or the proximal to the ileocecal junction or the small intestines, you would likely just given the age of our patients with lead, place an NG tube and, and do a go lightly clean out, the same sort of clean out that you order for colonoscopies, works for lead. Um, and so you, you'd admit them overnight, start the clean out, and um, repeat the films, the abdominal x-ray in the morning. Um, the other thing to note is typically in that setting, we would delay starting chelation for 12 hours for the concern that you may absorb more lead from the GI tract. And so you sort of want to proactively get the lead out of the GI tract at higher, higher, higher levels um, that you're worried about the neurologic status of the child acutely. Um, you would not do that. But in this case, um, that would be what I would recommend. And you had mentioned about chelation might interact and you might get higher levels. So how does chelation therapy actually work? Um, what's, our, what's our job with chelation therapy and what's our goal? Yeah, it's a great question. So our job of chelation therapy is to make the lead soluble so that it's peed out in the urine. Um, and so, but how I explain it to families is it sort of acts like a magnet. So theoretically, there's been studies that show that it will absorb more lead from the GI tract. I think whether that is clinically significant more lead is a little bit up to the shared decision-making of the family and the providers, but um, theoretically that risk is there. Could you walk us through our chelation options? Um, it sounds like, so it sounds like we have oral options, we have IV options, we have some that are toxic, we have some that are non-toxic. Can you walk us through kind of what our options are and why we should choose the ones we should choose? Yeah. So this is actually a great question and a changing landscape. There's actually been a lot of short national drug shortages and recalls of chelation therapies um, that have really sort of changed the landscape and, and in some ways changed sort of what we do for any given patient based on availability of, of our, these critical medicines. So there's two parental options or um, IV and IM options and um, one first line oral option and then a second line option. So I think of it as based on the height of the lead level. So typically for patients with a lead level greater than 70, you're reaching for your British anti-leucocyte or dimercaprol, um, which was developed in World War II um, and is manufactured in peanut oil. So you have to make sure the patient doesn't have a peanut allergy. And it's given for patients that are at risk for lead encephalopathy and, and greater than 70. And it's actually been recalled nationally, so it's no longer available. So we are in sort of dire straits when individuals have extreme lead levels above 70, um, and especially at levels that may be um, fatal. Um, and it's been recalled, I think, this year by the FDA because the manufacturer, the only manufacturer that was producing it, has stopped producing it. So that's British anti-leucocyte. The benefit of British anti-leucocyte, you, you had to admit the patient to the ICU. You were giving it IAM for Q4 hours, um, but it crosses the blood-brain barrier. So it was acting to get the lead out of the brain. Our next option for levels above 45 is calcium disodium editate. And in the absence of BAL, that's probably what you would go to. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So there's 
concern that you may mobilize lead into the brain spaces. And so that's why evidence and the education is around starting with BAL. Calcium disodium meditate as well is on a national shortage. Is um, It's not recalled, but it's n- not available, um, I think, since February 2022. Um, and so but compounding pharmacies can compound it, um, and it takes a lot of expertise to work with your pharmacy and your compounding pharmacy and and make sure that you're getting the right formulation to implement. But sometimes that can take a day before being able to access it. And then there is a French company that can make calcium disodium editate available in some circumstances and be stocked in the U.S. But calcium disodium editate is unbelievably expensive to stock for hospitals somewhere along the lines of like $96,000 for a five-day infusion. Um, and, you know, I think it just speaks to the sort of inequities of lead um, exposure. And these prices, you know, these medicines have been around forever. And um, these prices, I think, have skyrocketed because the demand is less um, and um, they've just skyrocketed. So in the greater than 45 range where we are with this patient, there's actually two options that are equally effective. So there's that calcium disodium meditate. The benefit is it works very well. Usually um, it's recommended to give a five-day course and it's an IV infusion. So it runs continuously for five days in the hospital. It gets the family out of the home, right? It gets the patient in a safe environment where they're no longer being exposed to lead. An oral option, um, dimercaptosuccinic acid, has been shown in studies to be equally effective for reducing lead in this um, 45 to 70 range. Um, and and it has the benefit of being oral. It is a sulfur-containing drug, so it smells like rotten eggs. Despite it being FDA-approved for children, it comes in pills <laughs> and not liquid. Um, and so um, families and nurses have to open the pill and, and stuff the little capsules from the pill into ice cream or pudding, spoonful, etc. So it's not super easy to take either, but um, is, is effective. And so that is an option. We still would recommend admitting the patient for a level above 45 because it gets the patient out of the home. It gets ongoing exposures. It's make sure that this family is tolerating this capsule that they've never given to their child before and you're monitoring for fevers, allergic reactions. Um, sometimes it can cause GI distress um, and all those things. So admitting them for a few days while the Department of Health identifies where the lead hazard is coming from and temporizes it. That's a great, that's a great rundown and actually super sad that we, um, that we literally can't give these IV medicines. Um, and it sounds like from whatever the reason is, you know, not only are we going to, does it cost a lot of money to give the drug? It costs a lot of money to put these in patients in the hospital, because if you're staying for five days, it's a five-day admission, getting IV therapy and 24-7 nursing. So all these things, you can see where the inequities lie going into this, because these are all patients who, again, most likely did not have enough resources to make their pre-1978 home lead-free. But so just getting back to some of the toxicities, you had mentioned getting hepatic function payload, you had mentioned getting a BMP to look for their renal function. At which one of these drugs do we need to monitor for side effects and what side effects might those be? Yeah, thank you. Sorry um, for not sort of delineating that better. But um, yes, the calcium disodium editate is um, potentially nephrotoxic. I don't mean to imply that every patient has um, nephrotoxicity from it. Um, I think, um, but it's important to be aware that it can be nephrotoxic as that changes the way we deliver it. So typically it's run with maintenance fluids and Patients are allowed to PO on top of that, and we're checking the 
UAs um, at least twice a day to make sure that you're not seeing any evidence of blood protein or leukocytes in the urine um, because it can cause any host of nephrotoxicity. It can cause AAN, it can cause um, um, nephritic syndrome, et cetera. Um, um, And and if you do find any evidence of um, proteinuria or hematuria, you're stopping the the IV keelant running fluids for a few hours, rechecking the urine, and typically it, it resolves, um, and then you can restart it and, and just continue to closely monitor. Um, so that's for um, calcium disonium meditate. For BAL, British anti-leucocyte, which is recalled, so less of an issue right now, but um, and its oral formulation, which is dimercaptosuccinic acid, those are potentially hepatotoxic, so you could have... Um, uh, transaminitis, um, and so you want to get a baseline set of um, LFTs and then um, monitor it after starting the medicine. Um, the dimercaptosuccinic acid, which is shortened to DMSA, so you don't have to remember that long word, um, <laughs> so sorry I didn't tell you that earlier, um, is um, is um, also can cause some GI distress, so um, um, can cause vomiting, although often sort of children are vomiting because or spitting out the medicine because it just tastes terrible, um, and or diarrhea. Um, and so depending on sort of how persistent and severe those symptoms are, depend on whether we're able to continue the course. So, so if our, our labs are stable throughout this whole course for say, uh, you know, a, a quote unquote typical, uh, you know, poisoning that you're treating and you're doing chelation therapy. So it sounds like you start off with, a parental chelation for sounds like maybe five days if you have it available. You start them on oral afterwards, and then so how how long is this time frame that we see them on on therapy? What does this look like? Are they on this for like a couple of weeks and they're sent home, and then they continue while they continue to work on environmental changes, or how does how does that look? Yeah, it's a great question. So in the pure form, the calcium disodium EDTA is five days, and the DMSA is an oral course. We've actually because they're sort of in those studies equally effective we've we've sort of done a hybrid approach with both if they both are available so we'll start on iv because i think we have more experience and and um have seen a more robust response in the iv just given the adherence limitations with um the oral um and then we'll send home usually on the oral once sort of the dph has cleared the home etc um or found different environmental sources of lead and then you're continuing that oral medicine for a 21 day course and then bringing the family back probably within a week for repeat lead testing and and you're getting lead testing while in the hospital and the way we continue the oral course is we do sort of three weeks on and then off for a month and then on and off and that's the key lint is is effective at reducing the lead in the bloodstream but it's less effective at um, treating sort of the multi-site um, storage of the lead in the body. And so the body will re-equilibrate after they're off of the medicine, you'll get a rebound level, and then you'll probably re-prescribe course. And we've shown, when we've looked at our data over 10 years, that it probably takes a year for on and off treatment for a lead level to go from above 45 to less than 20. And do you think that's from persistent exposure that we haven't fixed? Or do you think that's actually from um, from our slow medicines? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's probably from potentially a little bit of both, but I think once a family has a lead level of 45, I think the DPH, at least in Massachusetts, um, is very proactive at addressing the home environment. So I think it's primarily that children probably have steady state levels of lead and it, it just takes that long to get the lead out of their body. 
What kinds of things are happening in the background at home? Like if someone gets admitted and their level is 50, what kinds of things are the Department of Public Health doing? Yeah, um, so the Department of Public Health um, is often going to the home and with the parents' consent or the homeowner's consent um, and doing an inspection of the home and trying to identify lead hazards. And so the inspection of the home can usually consist of two things. One is sort of dust wipe samples and the um, USEPA and HUD have standards that um, different areas, floors versus windowsills, et cetera, um, have to comply with to be considered lead safe. Um, and then also they're doing what's called XRFs testing of the home, which is X-ray re- radio frequency, something XRF testing of the home. And they're seeing not only is the sort of most proximal layer of paint impacted by lead, contaminated by lead, but sort of what the burden of lead is in in those especially high friction areas that may be getting to the child. Lead um, is incredibly not porous. So nowadays you paint a room with latex paint. And by the time you've sort of finished painting the room, as my mentor would say, the first part is dry. And I guess in the good old days of lead paint, you would paint a room and you'd have to come back like a day later before it was dry. And so because of that, because, you know, lead persists and that's part of their was part of the sort of advertising motto. Um, we're stuck with sort of the spot burden of legacy lead in our environments that sort of persist, even if you put coats of latex paint over it that are much more porous. So you have patients, you're just like, all right, we're going to admit them to the hospital. We're going to get them out of the home so our lead inspector can go in and find it and then go clean it. And I feel like that is probably possible in some states, but it's not possible in every state. Instead, I'm admitting you to, to out of the hospital, seeing if I can do anything, finding out that I can't do something. And then what do I do? Do I discharge them back to their own home? Do I discharge them to maybe they have a friend's home, but how long are they going to stay there? Do they go to a homeless shelter? You know, like, um, you know, what do we do as doctors when we when we go to discharge these patients? Right. No, I think it's a great point. And I think, you know, there's even just the cost of, right, like, keeping these children for even a, a day or two in the home, in the hospital um, versus sort of if you're able to find them lead safe housing and starting an oral medicine um, is certainly more cost effective. I will plug two things. Um, one is the poison centers, 1-800-222-1222. Um, certainly if you're practicing and find yourself with an elevated lead level in any state, I would call them if you're not sure what to do. Um, and a lot of times the, they could give you advice themselves. And also sometimes, as in our case, partner with the Pediatric Environmental Health Specialty Unit, which is a national network of healthcare professionals and medical experts that are um, physicians, nurses, etc., that um, are plugged in in each U.S. EPA region or administrative region throughout the country. And so they should be able to help you identify resources to address lead exposures for your families. All right. So, Eddie has gone through, we're just returning back to the case here. Eddie has gone through, you know, quite the inpatient hospitalization, but um, but fortunately we actually did have EDTA uh, in our hospital stocked. So he gets going on five days of EDTA. We want monitoring his urinalysis um, twice daily, as you had mentioned, and then we ultimately decide to switch him to oral chelation therapy. Upon discharge, just for the primary care doctor that we're following up with, um, how many days of oral chelation therapy is he going on? And then when is our next lead check? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, if he did get five days of 
calcium disodium EDTA, I think you could actually give him a week holiday off of medicine, recheck the um, lead level, the zinc portoporphyrin, and a baseline LFTs and a CBC plus stiff to monitor for neutropenia, um, and start him on 21-day course of DMSA from there. And do we do we want to talk about um, what are the types of assistance that a primary care provider or pediatrician might have at this point? Yeah, so I think um, definitely based on sort of what that follow-up lead level comes back to, you should feel free to reach out to your regional pediatric environmental health special unit. I'm one of the co-directors for hours for the state of New England, um, and um, they're a network of experts that can provide advice for um, healthcare professionals in dealing, treating patients with environmental exposures. Excellent. Well, I, I really want to thank you for the time you've spent with us today. As, we, as we're wrapping up here, I just want to ask, do you have any main take-home points for our listeners before you sign off? Um, I think continuing to encourage the family um, and support the family and, and advocate for the family through this process, continuing to remind them that this wasn't their fault and trying to reduce sort of the stigma around lead poisoning and, and lead exposure and pointing out their strengths and all that they're doing to support a healthy development for their child and continuing on a professional level advocating for policies that reduce environmental exposures in our homes and our communities and our schools um, and support healthy and affordable housing. Excellent. I want to thank you again for the time you spent with us today. Before we go, do you want our listeners that, uh, is there anything you want to plug for our listeners to, to check out? Um, I think just the PESU Network website is www.pehsu.net. We're funded by the ATSDR, which is part of the CDC, as well as the US EPA and supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And there's a lot of great information on our website. And you can also find your regional expert for questions or concerns that you may have. Excellent. Thank you again Perfect. so much. Uh, I think our listeners and I definitely have learned a lot during um, this this last hour that we've talked. So thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks all. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. To do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsatters at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Clara Mao, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So I've been Sam Mazur. I'm Clara Mao. And this has been Chris the Chimanchu. Thank you and good night. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode. Hey.